Well, let's turn in our Bibles together tonight, the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 18. 1 Samuel, chapter 18 tonight. Tonight we're looking at the first five verses of 1 Samuel 18, and a lesson that I've entitled Promotion from the Lord. Promotion from the Lord. I have enjoyed already our study in the life of David. He's just one of those Bible characters that it's hard not to enjoy it, studying his life as you see what God has done in him and, and um, just the amazing man that he was, but more importantly, the amazing God that we serve that worked in his life. Now, just so you know, in the weeks ahead as we progress through the story of David's life, we're actually going to be interweaving the Psalms, some of the Psalms, as we go through the story, because many of the Psalms were written by David, uh, and we have a pretty good idea of what events were happening in his life when he wrote those Psalms, and so we'll be taking time to, to look at uh, those Psalms as they kind of come up chronologically in his story, and uh, I hope that it will, it will kind of help those Psalms be more meaningful and help us understand them. But tonight we're going to be looking, again, it's 1 Samuel 18. And uh, verses 1 through 5. And it came to pass, when he made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David, and his garment even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. And David went out with whithersoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. You know, self-promotion will always be a temptation for anyone who has a desire to succeed. We're going to be tempted to be impatient with our progress, to take matters into our own hands, and to try and advance ourselves. Instead of trusting God to lift us up however high He wants to lift us and whenever He wants to do it. We ought to be content with whatever place God puts us in. And that means being content to be as small as God wants us to be for as long as God may want us to be. Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7 says, For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. We ought to trust God to put us in the positions that He wants us in instead of scheming and manipulating to try and advance ourselves. When we look at the story of David's life, we find that in God's time, God began to exalt David. And it really began here early in the story in chapter 17 with uh, facing and defeating Goliath and now in chapter 18 with him being put in positions of, uh, of authority and positions of influence. But it was not David's scheming or his manipulation that brought this about. It was God's promotion. And tonight, I, I want us to see from the story of David three ways that God blessed him and God promoted him from a little-known, small-town shepherd 
to a very well-known leader of the nation. We're going to see that God blessed him with a princely friend in Jonathan, with prestigious employment in service of the king, and finally with public acceptance by people from all different classes. The principle we'll learn is that true promotion only comes from God, and so we must be content with whatever position God puts us in and trust God to advance us if, when, and how he chooses to do it. Number one, let's look at this first blessing of promotion, and that is a princely friend that God gave to David. In verse 1 and then in verses 3 and 4, we read about a very special bond that came between Jonathan, the king's son, and David. God blessed and promoted David with a princely friend and King Saul's son, Jonathan. And I want you to notice with me, first of all, their affection for one another. In verse 1, it says, It came to pass when he, that is, when David, had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So at the end of chapter 17, you remember, David has come back from fighting the Philistines, and he's called before the king to have kind of an interview. And he stands before the king, and the king asks him, Whose son are you? And he answers him, I'm the son of the servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. And the indication is there was probably a little more conversation than just that one sentence that went on. And Jonathan was there listening in, and he was so impressed with David and how he carried himself that he immediately had a bond with him so close. The Bible says it was like their souls were knit together. They were bosom buddies, you might call it. They were best of friends. Now, some people have read into the statements of Scripture something that is not there. And if you know, you know. Understand that this was just a friendship between two men becoming, as it were, blood brothers, committing their lives to protect and to serve one another. It's okay for a man to demonstrate love. Every man who is a man of God ought to love God, ought to love his neighbor, ought to demonstrate love to others. Their love was the love of true men who were willing to fight and die alongside each other. Listen, David and Jonathan were anything but sissies. All right? If you'd have called David that, he'd have probably challenged you to a slingshot contest just to see who really was the sissy, you know? If you'd have called Jonathan that, he'd have said, uh, I'm sorry, have you and your armor bearer ever attacked a garrison of Philistines alone? No, he probably wouldn't have said that. But the fact of the matter is, these were real men, and they were committing themselves to one another to fight and protect each other. But what I want you to see especially here. That it is that it wasn't David's exploits on the battlefield that caused Jonathan to befriend him. It doesn't say that when he, uh, when he had seen him kill Goliath, that his soul was knit to him. Or he'd seen him returning from the victory with the Philistines. No, it was after he watched David and how he carried himself with Jonathan's father, the king, that Jonathan said this is one special kind of guy. 
Jonathan had seen countless men distinguish themselves as warriors, but none had distinguished themselves as a men of respect and wisdom and, and godliness as David had. You remember that resume from back in chapter 16 about David, about all of the things that he was, how he was a, a great musician, but he was also a mighty man, and he was, he, he was just kind of the whole deal, the whole package. And, and Jonathan recognized this in David, and Jonathan in this story is the one that took the initiative to build this bond with David. And in many ways, Jonathan serves as a very good illustration of our Savior. Think about it. Jonathan was the son of the king. Jesus is the son of the king of kings. Jonathan, in position of authority and influence, was much higher than David. And Jesus, in position and influence, is infinitely higher than us. Jonathan to befriend David, really had to humble himself and stoop, if you will. And Jesus, in order to come to earth and befriend us, had to humble himself. Jonathan became a friend that sticketh closer than a brother to David, just like Jesus became to us. Turn to John chapter chapter 15, John chapter 15, verses 13 through 15 for a moment. Have you ever really stopped to consider this? That as a follower of Jesus, he calls you his friend? To me, that's a very special term. That's not a term that I throw around lightly. There are a lot of acquaintances we have. But people that we would truly call our friends, that tends to be a pretty small number in comparison. And so for the Lord Jesus Christ to say what he says here in John 15, listen to this. He says, greater love hath no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for his, what? Friends. Ye are my friends, he says, if ye do whatsoever I have commanded you. Verse 15, henceforth I call you not servants. I'm not treating you like slaves. Yes, we are servants of Christ. We ought to dedicate our lives to him. But Jesus says, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I've heard of my Father, I've made known to you. Jesus calls us his friend. Do we deserve that? No, we do not. But yet Jesus in his grace and his mercy stoops to befriend us. Notice, Next here, their agreement together. The Bible says in verse 3 that Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. As a sign of Jonathan's affection, he entered into a covenant with David. We're not told exactly the details of the covenant, but they made and they kept a promise to one another. That's what a covenant is. It's a promise. When we look at the story, it appears from future interactions that this covenant involved mutual protection and help to one another. Remember that when Saul was trying to kill David, who was it that helped David escape? It was Jonathan on several occasions. Even after Jonathan died, David 
showed kindness to Jonathan's family because of this covenant. So there was this promise made and this promise kept between one another. We live in a world that is increasingly reluctant for commit, to make commitments. People don't want to be committed. People want to do their own thing. They want to be free to come and go. They want to be free to do this or that. They don't want to commit. That's why many people today are just choosing not to get married. Because they don't want to commit. That's why a lot of people today are, are afraid of, uh, of, of spiritual commitment. Because they don't want the responsibility that comes with it. And understand that. With a commitment, with a promise, with a covenant comes a responsibility. You make a promise, you keep it. That's what you ought to do. But God is a God of commitment. There are so many promises that God made. In fact, promises and commitments are so important to how God operates that we actually divide our Bible in two parts based on some of the most important promises God made. We call it the Old Testament and the New, very good class. New Testament. What is a testament? It's a covenant. It's a promise. It's a commitment. God is a God of commitment. He makes promises and He keeps promises and He wants us to do the same. Our very salvation is based on the commitment, the covenant, the promise of God. Titus 1 and verse number 2 says, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Sometimes we make promises we never intend to keep. Shame on us when we do that. Sometimes we make promises that we mean to keep, but then we realize it's going to be a lot harder than we thought it would be. We go back on our word. In every instance, we should only make promises that we intend to keep, and we should keep the promises we make. Psalm 15 says in verse 1, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Verse 4 answers, In whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. Someone who makes a promise and says, Later, this is going to cost me a lot more than I thought, but you know what? I made the promise. I'm going to keep the promise. That's the kind of person that honors the Lord. And in this also, Jonathan reminds us of our Savior because even though he's the son of the king of kings, Jesus promises us many things, including eternal life. And Jesus will keep every promise that he makes. 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God in him, that is in Jesus, are yea, that is yes, affirmative, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. So there was their affection, their agreement. Letter C, notice Jonathan's adornment. He did something very interesting here in verse number four. It says that Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. Why did he do this? I mean, this in our culture especially, this is kind of strange. I mean... If you were watching this scene unfold and here's, you know, these two guys, let's just say it's Sunday morning and they meet for the first time, they strike up a friendship and all of a sudden the one guy's like, 
man, I have never met a guy like you. I want to be your best friend the rest of your rest of our lives. Let's just make a promise right now that we're going to be best buddies. And they shake hands on it. And all of a sudden, the one guy says, you know what? Here, have my suit coat. And he takes it off and hands it to him. And here, have my tie. And he takes his tie and hands it to him. I couldn't understand him getting rid of the tie. But anyway, say, say here, here, I have my dress shirt. And he takes off his dress shirt, and he's just got his undershirt on that and gives it to him. And then he takes off his belt and gives it to him, takes off his shoes, and he's got his Looney Tunes socks under there, and he, does, he keeps those. He's not giving those away. But you're watching this, and you're like, cuckoo, cuckoo, right? It's a little weird. Why did he do this? Well, think about it. What was, what was Jonathan, the son of the king? What did that robe that he wore signify? His position, his his honor, his influence. This was not just some ordinary robe that he picked up at Walmart on the way to the Valley of Elah, you know. This This would have been expensive clothing. This would have been expensive weaponry that he gave him. This was all very symbolic of his status as the son of the king. So Jonathan was essentially sharing his royalty with David. Think about that. He shared his royalty with David. And again, we see in this a beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us. Through Christ, we are clothed in righteousness. Jesus took our filthy rags so that we might be covered by his perfect royal righteousness. The righteousness of the son of the king of kings. Listen to this verse from Isaiah 61, verse 10. He said, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. And as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. Isaiah said that is what God has done for us. He has clothed us with salvation and with righteousness. His righteousness. Jesus has shared his royalty with us. I was thinking about this and we have a tradition at our house um, at Christmas time. We always open one present on Christmas Eve. And uh, it's usually some kind of clothing. And this year we wanted to do something different. And uh, so we actually designed a logo for our family. And uh, we printed them on hoodies, zip-up hoodies, and we gave them uh, to the kids on Christmas Eve. And so they have gray hoodies with this white logo that says Team Chambers on it. Now, there are only six people in the world that have those, that are official members of Team Chambers. Now, if you wanted to get in on that, you'd have to become a member of the family. All right? And that means either marriage or adoption. If you're interested in the first, see me later and I'll give you an application, okay? And what Jonathan did for David here was essentially adopt him into the royal family. It was essentially giving him... And we see, we're going to see this in Jonathan's life. At no point does Jonathan ever say, you know, I really should be the next king. What he's basically doing here is he's turning it all over to David and saying, David, you're the guy. 
I'm giving it to you because I recognize you're the one that deserves it. Now, in our case, we don't deserve anything. We don't deserve any of the righteousness. We don't deserve the salvation, but God in his grace has given it to us. Notice also that Jonathan gave David his sword and his bow, two, two weapons. The sword was for close quarters combat. The bow was for long range attacks. And think in a, in a similar manner, but you know, far greater, we've been given mighty weapons as, as our spiritual part of our spiritual armor. We've been given the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We've been given the mighty weapon of prayer. And all of this is just a beautiful picture of what God has done for us. And Jonathan's friendship was one of the greatest blessings in David's life. Through it, God would encourage and protect and guide David for a long time. To go from a lowly, unknown shepherd to the best friend of the son of the king was a great promotion indeed. But notice with me, number two, the next promotion that we see David got was some prestigious employment. In verse 2, it says that Saul took him that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house. Verse 5, And David went out whithersoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely, and Saul set him over the men of war. So David got a new job, a full-time job. Previously, he had been employed as a shepherd. For a brief period of time, he was also a royal musician and an armor-bearer to the king. But he went back to shepherding just prior to the battle with Goliath. But immediately after that battle, Saul made David a full-time employee of the kingdom. That meant stability, that meant security, that meant income, that meant all the benefits that went with it. Now his job was two, twofold. He had two parts to it. First of all, he acted as a royal ambassador. It says in verse number five that David went out with her, so ever Saul sent him. So Saul said, David, I need you to go here and do this. And that's what he did. He went. Now, as such, he would send him out on business in the name of the king, and that meant trusting David with a tremendous amount of responsibility. Can you imagine being the official representative of the king? And as an ambassador, it was David's job to represent the king and to behave himself wisely in his duty, and that's exactly what he did. He was careful. He did not bring shame on himself or the king. He didn't undermine the king's authority. He was a faithful ambassador for the king. But also Saul made David a general in his army. It says in verse number 5 that he set him over the men of war. He would be in charge of planning and executing battle plans and leading the men to war. And, and understanding Bible times is a little bit different than today. Most of the, you know, the generals and the people in charge, they're sitting in some comfortable place somewhere directing the battle. But in Bible times, if you were in charge of the men of the war, that meant you were out front literally leading them most of the time. That was where you were expected to be. It wasn't a desk job for David. It was not just a fancy title. He was entrusted with the lives of the, all the soldiers under him and the fate of the nation. That's a huge responsibility. Hey, David, the Philistines are coming. If you don't defeat them, we're going to be slaves again. No pressure there. <laughs> I mean, this was huge. Now think about how much has changed in David's life in such a short period of time. In chapter 17, David was an errand runner for his father. 
His father said, hey, take this cheese to your brothers. He was a cheese deliverer. (laughs) Now he's running errands for the king. An ambassador. He previously fought with lions and bears to protect sheep. But now he's fighting foreign invaders to protect a nation. God blessed David for his faithfulness in the small things and his willingness to trust God fully. I want you to think with me about the parallels to our lives. As Christians, you understand that we've also been commissioned as ambassadors. We are sent out into the world to represent the king of kings. And we have a duty to behave ourselves wisely when we do it. Because the reputation of the king and the reception of the gospel are dependent on our character. Let me say that again. The reputation of the king and the reception of the gospel all depends on our character. That's a pretty big responsibility. That's what it means to be an ambassador. 1 Corinthians 5.20 Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead. We're here. Christ isn't. We're here begging you. Be reconciled to God. That's our job to represent the King of Kings. But not only that, we're soldiers in the Lord's army. Being a Christian is not a desk job or just a fancy title. And by the way, it's not a spectator sport either. Being a Christian in America too many times becomes just a consumer type activity. Just like you would sit down at a restaurant and expect them to serve you and you get good service, you go home, you're happy. A lot of people have that idea about being a, a Christian. I'm just, I just come, I get, and I'm happy. Look, being a Christian means you are in a fight. And it means that you need to get your hands dirty fighting the good fight of faith. You don't get to sit around and just be lazy. It means engaging the enemy in the battle for the souls of men and the glory of God. Paul told Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. David's position in King Saul's government would give him valuable experience and and education that would later help him be a good king in his own right. But it was God who promoted him to that prestigious position. It wasn't David's pursuing it or promoting himself. He trusted God and did what was right, and God exalted David in his time. Notice the last promotion that he he received in this passage, what we might call public acceptance, the end of verse 5. He was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. It wasn't just King Saul who appreciated David. It wasn't just Jonathan who appreciated David. David's reputation spread and soon the general public and even the royal servants had a favorable opinion of David. Notice it says that in verse 5, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Let me ask you a question. How do politicians usually react when the young upstart is getting higher approval ratings than they are? How do politicians usually react? Yay, I'm so proud of that guy. (laughs) No. 
with what? Jealousy, envy, backbiting, manipulating, and all these kinds of things. But the Bible says that even King Saul's servants loved David. This was another clear indication of David's promotion by the Lord. Let me say this, when it comes to this thing of public acceptance, it is wrong for us to live for the approval of men. It's sinful if we're living to please people. We should only ever live to please God and we should concern ourselves with His approval of our lives and no one else's. That's hard to do. If you're honest, you will admit that's hard to do because every one of us is tempted to one degree or another to be a people pleaser. Even if it's just your spouse or your parents or your best friends, there are people in your life that, that you're tempted to live to please them, but God is the only one we should live to please. Paul said this in Galatians 1.10, For now do I persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. You can't do both. 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself a, a, approved unto God, the verse says, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. When we live for God alone, though, something interesting happens. He will often bless us with the favor of others. People will appreciate what God is doing in our lives. And God will allow us greater influence and responsibility because we have been faithful with the little that we began with. Just like David, he was faithful with those few sheep. And now, all of a sudden, he's over an entire army. And he's going out on the king's business as an official representative. And now he has acceptance with all the people and even the king's servants. And that was really the same pattern in Jesus' life. You know, a, an amazing verse is Luke 2.52. It says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You know, rather than trying to build up our image, build our brand, increase our influence, we need to focus on pleasing God and seeking His approval and allow God to promote us in His time and in His way. So let me ask you tonight, what is your goal in life? Who are you trying to promote? Either you're trying to promote God or someone else. Usually the someone else is yourself. But you cannot do both. If you're trying to promote yourself, grow your audience, build your following, be a star influencer, you are not promoting God. You can't do the both at the same time. You can't serve those two masters. John the Baptist said it this way, he must increase, but I must decrease. So rather than trying to promote ourselves, we must be faithful to trust God and do what is right and rely on God for our promotion. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you have promoted us. That is, those of us who know Christ as our Savior to the position of children of the King. We are a 
royal priesthood, your word tells us. And all of that was made possible because your son gave us his royal righteousness. May we never forget that. May we never forget that who we are and what we have is all because of what Jesus has done for us. And may we live for your glory and never for our own. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.